0: Welcome to The Leader's Notebook with Dr. Mark Rutland. Dr. Rutland is a world-renowned leadership expert. He is a New York Times best-selling author, and he has served as the president of two universities. The Leader's Notebook is brought to you by Global Servants. For more information about Global Servants, please visit our website, globalservants.org. Here is your host, Dr. Mark Rutland. I want to preach tonight on a specific subject. When when preachers announce this subject, there, there are those people that that always say, oh, this is not for me. You know, but I, I want you to hear what I'm gonna to say tonight. I want to speak tonight on marriage. I know that the single people also, oh, man, you know, I just like to get in on it, you know. <laughs> but I, I want to speak on marriage tonight, and I, I want to speak from four marriages in scripture that are not perfect. Uh and, and there are things to learn from those that are totally broken. There's something to learn from those that are struggling. There's something to learn. I think sometimes, uh, um, folks in the, in the seats in, in church cherish the myth that their pastors have, have perfect marriages. i not, I can't speak for, uh, Charisse and the guy she's trying to raise, but. <laughs> But no, no, nobody has a perfect marriage. There's no such thing as that because there's no perfect people. In fact, there's, there are people in the ministry that struggle with their marriages. One of the, one of the most famous pastors in the state, his, his, his wife left him, deserted him. He, there was no affair. There was no nothing. She'd, she just left him. There's, you, you can't make your spouse do right. And... Uh, One of the most famous ministers of all time, John Wesley, the founder of the Wesleyan Revival Movement, and certainly the founder of the Methodist Church, struggled with his marriage. He was one of those people that was single for most of his life, and he's one of those people that was gifted to be single and should have stayed single. And some of his friends badgered him into getting married. They said, it doesn't look good for the leader of this movement to be single. And so they badgered him into getting married, and they brought this lady forward, and said, here, marry her, and he did it, and it was a disaster. The marriage was, was horrible. By the time she died, he, they were so separated, he didn't even attend her funeral. John Wesley didn't go to his wife's funeral. He wrote in his diary, I did not marry to find happiness, and I did not find it. Now, this seems like an odd introduction to a sermon on marriage, doesn't it? What I, what I ought to be standing up here and telling you is, is that, that the Franklin's marriage is perfect. They've never had an argument. They've never exchanged a sharp word. There's never been a, a moment of tension that the Rutlands, oh, God knows the Rutlands, we've had perfect, unblemished 50 years of, of perfection in every way. The only thing with starting a sermon that way is that it's, it's really bad to start a sermon with a lie. That's not a, <laughs> That's not a good way to start a message. So uh, all the married people, if you will, will you raise your hand and keep your hand up? Okay, look. all the married people. Now just look around, look around at all this ocean, vast ocean of hands. and keep your hand up. Now if Your marriage has been totally unblemished. You've never had an argument. Never. Neither of you have ever acted ugly. They've never done anything mean or wicked. Or And you've never had a a struggle. It's been sheer perfection from the beginning until this moment. Leave your hand up. Everybody else take your hand down. And you can look around the room and you'll be able to see if there are any liars. (laughs) Right down here, this brother has his hand up. And his wife is pulling his arm down. (laughs) What I want to do is take these marriages that we see in scripture, scriptural marriages. Even those that are the best of marriages are not perfect. I want to see what it is for us to learn from these. The first is a married couple named Ananias, his name, and Sapphira, her name. Acts chapter 5. But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession and kept back part of the price, his wife also knowing of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostle's feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why hath Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back part of the price? While it remained, was it not thine own? After it was sold, was it not in thine own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing, this lie, in thine heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. And Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and died. And great fear came upon all them that heard these things. And the young men arose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. That seems like a strange passage because we are 21st century Gentiles and not 1st century Jews. But remember... That classical Jewish law requires that a dead body be buried before sundown. So they took him out to bury him right that minute. Now, ladies, I want you to look at the next verse. And it was about the space of three hours later when his wife, not knowing what was done, came in. <laughs> look, girls, she is three hours late to church. <laughs> I'm just saying, as in passing. You know what has saved our marriage? Two cars. I was raised by a paratrooper, and if you were on time, you were late. My wife has a very cosmic view of space and time. She feels if you leave home at the time the thing is supposed to start, that's close enough. This this is a point of great tension in marriages. So I leave when I leave. She leaves when she leaves. Do you know what? She can get to church late and be closer to God than I who arrive on time. And I find this very irritating. (laughs) And it was about the space of three hours after when his wife Sapphira, not knowing what was done, came in. And Peter answered her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yea, for so much. And Peter said unto her, how is it that you have agreed together to test or try or tempt the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of them who have buried thy husband are at the door, and they shall carry thee out. And then she fell down immediately at his feet and died. And the young men came in and found her dead, and carrying her forth, buried her by her husband. The next verse is a brilliant burst of biblical understatement. It says, And great fear came upon the church. I'm just guessing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in the next few moments, I pray that your Holy Spirit will brush aside all of our carefully erected devices of self-defense. I pray that you will speak to every man and every woman, every person of every age in this room. Deal with us, O Lord. Deal with us. We believe you for it. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. The deal here with Ananias and Sapphira is that this is a marriage where they are willing co-conspirators they are they are both involved in wickedness together which they have agreed upon in this case it is attempting to find some kind of um promotion in the church by pretending to give a greater percent of their revenue than they do it's not an issue of amount then the money's theirs. They sell their farm. Just pick a figure. They sell it for $200,000. And then they come in with a check for $100,000. And they say, we sold the farm for $100,000. And we want to give the whole thing, the whole thing to the church. Well, the issue is not the amount. It's not 100000 or 200000 The issue is the lie. But here's the greater issue. Is that what, what brass What does it take for these two people to sit at the dining room table and say, I know what let's do. Let's lie about this. Let's lie to the church. Let's lie to the preacher. Let's lie to God. Let's agree on this. What kind of hardness of heart, what callousness of spirit devises that? Now, that's the issue for them. However, having said that, I don't know that there's a married couple in this house or maybe in America today that would conspire over that kind of a lie. But there are those couples that agree together in some kind of ongoing and destructive wickedness. They both take part in it together. They decide to run a meth lab in the basement. They decide to, to involve themselves in some kind of sexual immorality. They they go along with it together. That's the, the most destructive kind of marriage. That's the marriage where both people agree that they're going to take part in this wickedness. And they, they motivate each other. If iron sharpens iron for righteousness, then iron sharpens iron for wickedness. And there is no, there is no mitigating factor in the marriage. Now forget about wickedness. Forget about that. Think about other things that are not so egregious as wickedness. The kind of overwrought emotionalism, explosive temper, unruly action, uncontrolled anger, where there's no mitigating factor in the household, where they, where they rub each other. And both of them fuel the other when they motivate the other when one. their one's emotion drives the other one's anger drives the other and the marriage becomes becomes a mutually agreed upon atmosphere that is contrary to the character and nature of God. It's not that they agree to defraud the church or they agree to open a meth lab. I mean, we can see those things, but I'm talking about where the atmosphere of the marriage is an atmosphere where they enter in and subconsciously, whether they sit at the dining room table like Ananias and Sapphira, they subconsciously allow themselves to a point of agreement, this is the way we're going to live. This is what we're going to put up with. I'll yell and you yell and then we make the kids cry and then the whole thing becomes explosive and nobody's going to back down and this is the atmosphere of our home which we basically basically have agreed on. It becomes the agreed upon Maybe not verbally, they don't write a contract, but it's the social contract of that household because both of them agree this is the way we're going to live. What's the outcome? The outcome is the outcome that it was for Ananias and Sapphira, and that's the spirit of death enters in. If we are going to do marriage successfully in this 21st century culture in which we live... It's going to be because at some point or another, we say we've got to tear up this contract. We can't live this way. We can't live at this level of anger. We can't live at this level of bitterness or unforgiveness. We can't live at this level of, of spiritual death or even sin. There, there are married couples in, in this town that live in sin Gre- agreed upon. Call it whatever you want to. But it is the it is the mutually agreed upon social fabric of that household. And it's destructive. It's destructive to them. It's destructive to their children. And it can be destructive even to the third and fourth generation. Ananias and Sapphira represent those marriages where there is nobody pulling back. Nobody's putting their foot on the brake. Nobody is saying no. What, what would have happened if Ananias had said, I know what let's do let's cheat the church. Let's lie to God. Let's test the Holy Spirit. I know what let's do. We'll tell them we sold it for a hundred thousand. We'll pocket a hundred thousand. We'll give a hundred thousand and everybody will think we're wonderful. We gave away everything we had. What would have happened if Sapphira had said, I'm not going along with that. I'm not doing that. What are you talking about? I love you and I respect you and I honor you as my husband, but that's not right and I'm not going along with that. Maybe the, maybe that wouldn't, that whole story wouldn't even be in the Bible. Maybe it was Sapphira that thought it up. She said, you know, Matthias, well, when he gave away his farm, everybody said, oh, he's a spiritual hero. Let's do the same thing. What difference would it make if we pocket some of the money on $100,000? That's a big gift. They'll be glad to get it. They'll be glad to get it. And let's just pocket 100,000 and take the credit for 200,000. Let's do that. What if Ananias had said, "I love you, baby. I love you, and I want to stay married to you, but that's not going to be the way we do things in this house. As for me and my house, we serve the Lord. We're not going to have that. The destructiveness of a social contract between a married couple that have agreed to tolerate and even become willing co-conspirators in an atmosphere of darkness that shuts the light out is destructive to them and to everyone around them. You know what's not told in this story? The Bible doesn't mention it, so I don't feel the liberty to add, but I have to ask myself, I wonder if they had kids. Who went home to tell the kids? Your parents are dead. Not only that, who tells the kids they fell down dead in the, in church because they lied about the offering? I bet I bet that says I bet they say, Whoa, "Boy, we want to be Christians." You understand what I'm talking about? The damage that we do. Nobody sins in a vacuum. The marriages that are in this room, the marriages that fall under the sound of my voice, that are tolerating, willing to go along with an atmosphere of darkness, the damage isn't yours alone. Second, turn to 1 Kings chapter 21. Another famous couple. 1 Kings chapter 21. This is the story of a a Jewish king, Ahab, or we say Ahab, Ahab and his uh, Gentile wife, a pagan, named Jezebel. Now, I'm going to begin reading verse 1, and I'm just going to read verse 7. Now, Then I'll give you the, the context, but let's read the passage first. And it came to pass after these things that Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard, which was in Jezreel, close to the palace of Ahab Ahab, the king of Samaria. And Ahab spoke unto Naboth, saying, Give me thy vineyard, that I may have it for a garden of herbs, because it is so near to my house. And I will give thee a better vineyard than it, or if it seem good to thee, I will give thee the worth of it in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give thee the inheritance of my fathers. In other words, according to classical Jewish law, you can buy and sell, trade in ancillary properties, but that Fundamental piece of your inheritance, that which is passed down from father to son, father to son, father to son, that you're not allowed to sell. He says, I inherited this. This is the family farm. I can't sell that to you. I'll sell you something else. But look at verse four. And Ahab came into his house sullen and displeased. Because of the word which Naboth the Jezreelite had spoken to him, for he had said, I will not give thee the inheritance of my fathers. And Ahab the king, he, Ahab the king, lay down upon his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. What a baby. This is the king of Israel laying on his bed and sucking his thumb. He wouldn't give me, wouldn't give me the vineyard. Or give me the vineyard. That's an unbelievable picture, isn't it? But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said unto him, Why is thy spirit so sad? And why, and that thou eatest no food? And he said unto her, Because I spoke unto Naboth the Jezreelite and said unto him, Give me thy vineyard for money, or else if it please thee, I will give thee another vineyard for it. And you know what he said to me? He said, I will not give it to you. Can you believe that? And Jezebel, his wife, said unto him, Dost thou now govern the kingdom of Israel? In other words, are you the king or not? Arise and eat food and let thine heart be merry, and I will give thee the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. Now, I just want you to see the contradiction in this story. This is hard for me to say because I also am a male. But here it is. I grew up believing that women were the sulkers. It is not true. Men are inveterate sulkers. They sulk. No, ladies, don't applaud. This is going to end badly for you. (laughs) Men sulk. Women tend to explode. Men tend to implode. So you start home from the Sunday school party, and the wife says, you're mad at me. No, I'm not. I did something, I did so I said something, in there. no, no. You're angry at me, aren't you? I'm not angry. I'm not angry. Just tell me what it is, baby. What, what did I do? I'm not angry. If you go on with this anymore, I'll be angry. Men, men suck like babies. Every man in this room, you know what it's like. You, you have an argument right before bed. She wants to apologize, and you're just sulking, you know, and you get in that huge king size bed and you lay there you can hear her on the other side <sniffs> 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 you lay there <sniffs> and after a little while you feel her little foot sneaking under the covers <sniffs> she puts her little bare foot against you back of your leg and it just it burns it burns. <laughs> and you realize all she wants to do, just, just touch me, just tell me you still love me. And they feel, like, oh, you feel that. So you, go, mm-hmm, and you roll over just a little bit. You can hear her. just a little while. Here comes her foot. And she would chase you. Until you realize you're in a bed the size of the Pacific Ocean and you're both on the beach. <laughs> oh, I know why you're laughing. <laughs> because you know what? We've done that same thing. Men, men are suckers. Look at the king of Israel sucking like a big fat baby because this guy won't sell him. He owns a nation. And this guy won't sell him this vineyard, and he's sunken. won't eat, sulking. Now, what is the story here? Jezebel is manipulative and controlling. She appeals to his ego. Are you the king or not? He says, yes, I'm the king. But listen to what she says. It's a contradiction. She says, let me get it for you. They are not co-conspirators in evil like Ananias and Sapphira. They are mutual enablers. There are marriages where the the whole marriage is in destructive patterns because one is enabling the other. If we're going to have Christian marriages in the 21st century, we're going to have to learn to confront each other in love like grown-ups. Like grown-ups. To be able to say, I love you. I care about you. I give my life for you. I give my life to you. But I need to tell you something. It disappoints me when you do that. That's not right. When you said that, that made me angry. Girls, if men are sulkers, why don't women pack it down, pack it down, pack it down, just push it all down, and then light the fuse. (laughs) Pow! Early. See, like before the explosion. says. That made me angry. That hurt my feelings. I don't like it when you say that. I don't care for it when you do that. You don't you don't have to scream it. Just say it. That's how we confront each other in love. Grown-ups are able to tell each other the truth. And guys, when she tells you the truth, when she tells you the truth, you gotta why well, Why won't she tell you the truth? I'll tell you why. Because you make up the price she has to pay so heavy that she will, she finally, she just says, no, I'll pack it down. I'll just suppress it. I just won't say it because he makes me pay such a heavy price emotionally. I can't stand the confrontation. No, no. (laughs) (laughs) See, somehow I feel like we're not communicating here. All right, I'll give you one. Here you go. This is embarrassing, but did hear it. My wife and I got married. I was 19 years old. She was 17. We, we, we were crazy in love. And my wife's 67 years old. She looks like she's in her 40s now. When she was 17, she was the cutest little number you've ever seen in your whole life. You know, I mean, just drop dead gorgeous. I was 19. I'd hardly ever had a date, let alone be married. I didn't know how to do this thing. So, when I come in the room, and I find my wife, like, you know, she's getting something out of the bottom drawer or something. See, there was just... There was just something about that that just seemed to beg me. I, I, I don't know what it was. I couldn't resist. Pop! You know... I the only man here that's ever don't, you don't want your preacher to tell you this stuff I know I can see it I can see it in your faces you're thinking my God he's not even saved no but there was just something about that we've been married for years for years and finally Allison said Mark I have something I want to say to you I said, what is it, baby? She said, I don't like it when you smack me on the butt. I said, what? What? She said, I don't like it. She said, it doesn't feel loving and tender to me. It feels something. She said, I don't like it. And she said, I'm not livestock. She said, I don't, I don't like it when you do that. I said, I thought we were both enjoying that. <laughs> she said half of us weren't. <laughs> okay, what do you do? What, what are you going to do with that? Say, okay, unless you let me smack you on the butt, then I'm going to sulk. <laughs> no, that's where you say, okay. I don't do that anymore. I love you. I appreciate you telling me. And I'm sorry I didn't figure this out before. And... St- And since that time, I haven't done it very often. (laughs) I'm better. I'm better. I'm lots better. Bunch of hypocrites. What if, what if, what if Jezebel had said to Ahab, You get up out of that bed. You get up out of that and act like a man. You don't have the right to that man's vineyard. Wives, I'm not saying you have to raise your husband for Jesus. But I am saying your influence upon him can make him the man of God that you long for and that God wants him to be. And guys, you, you quit acting like you're the... The bad kid and your wife is the good mom. You both supposed to be grown ups in this thing, and there would be this moment where where she can say to you, "That's that's not like a, that's not what a man of God does. I love you, but that's not manly. That's not what a man of God does." For you, and, and you can hear her say that Jezebel's influence upon Ahab was selfish and manipulative and enabled him in his weakness. He got worse because of his wife, not better. I'm not laying this on the girls. I'm just saying that we enable each other. We can come to the place where we enable each other's weaknesses, even addictions, where we're where we willing to pay the price because we're not willing to have the confrontation and the intervention that we need in order to make the thing change. And again... Just like with Ananias and Sapphira, how did it end? It ended with both of them destroyed. That kind of mutually enabling marriage is ultimately destructive. And it was destructive to a lot of other people. Now, here's a famous couple. If you have your Bible still, turn to 2 Samuel, if you will, please. 2 Samuel 11, 1 through 5. 2 Samuel 11, 1 through 5. And it came to pass after the year was ended, at the time when kings go forth to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the children of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David tarried still at Jerusalem. And it came to pass at tide that David arose from his bed and walked upon the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman washing herself, and the woman was very beautiful to look upon. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And David sent messengers and took her and she came in unto him and he lay with her for she was purified from her uncleanness and she returned unto her house. And the woman conceived and sent and told David and said, I'm with child. Now I'm going to read a second passage in just a moment, but I want this one to sink in. Everybody, there are people who don't even know the stories in the Bible that know the story of David and Bathsheba. It's probably the most famous love affair uh, uh, or notorious love affair in history and in scripture and literature. But here's what I want to say to you about this. I've been thinking about how can I say this. This is a marriage that had a bad beginning. There may, there may be marriages in this house. And I'm not just saying because somebody got pregnant. But there are marriages that may just didn't start well. But I want to tell you something. Just because the marriage doesn't start well, doesn't mean it has to stay bad and it doesn't have to mean, it doesn't mean it has to end badly. There was a couple years ago that came to one of our couples conferences. And they were already divorced. They wouldn't even sit together. They were young. They were in their early thirties. His parents brought him and he sat with his parents. Her parents brought her and she sat with her parents angry, hurt, already divorced. When the couples conference came to an end and we, Allison and I had shared and talked about some of the things we've been through and the difficulties and problems, they came forward, answered an altar call with a lot of other couples. We saw them there holding hands, the two sets of parents praising God, they're weeping and everything. Allison and I went down to that young couple. And the boy said, I, I, I want us to get remarried. I want us to be back again. I want us to be back again, together again. And the girl said, what makes us think it will be different? What makes us think it will be different? She said, I don't want to do this again. I'll never forget what he said. He said, it will be different because we're different. He said, we are not the two people that got married the last time. She looked at him and she said, are you sure? He said, I can't speak for you. I'm not the man you married the last time. What a disaster. David and Bathsheba got married. They began badly. It was a disaster. The baby that they conceived in this adulterous affair died. David murdered her husband. They tried to hide it. It's exposed publicly, became the greatest public scandal in the history of Israel. It was a disaster. What makes them think it will be different? Because in Psalm 51, David says, create in me a clean heart, renew a right spirit within me, cleanse me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Bring the Holy Spirit. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Make me different. Make me different. If you want a different marriage, be a different person in the power of God. They got honest about the past. They got honest about their own need for forgiveness, and they got honest about their faith for the grace of God in the future. I don't think you can find a marriage that would begin any worse than the marriage of David and Bathsheba with adultery, pregnancy, a a dead baby, uh, and a murder That's a pretty rocky start for a marriage. But try this. Turn to chapter 12, verse 24 and 25. And David comforted Bathsheba, his wife, and went in unto her and lay with her. And she bore a son, another son. And David called his name Solomon, or in Hebrew, Shlomo. And the Lord loved him. And the Lord sent word by the hand of Nathan the prophet. This is the same prophet that had denounced the affair, exposed the adultery, exposed the murder, and announced the death of the first baby. Don't you know when he walked in the room, they were terrified? And the Lord sent word by the hand of Nathan the prophet, and Nathan called his name Jedidiah. It's the only place in the whole Bible where the name is used. Jedidiah. David named him Solomon. But God named him Jedidiah. Do you know what it means? It means beloved of the Lord. God said, you think I'm angry at you. You think you destroyed your own selves. You hurt yourselves. You started badly. But you're going to end with love. You're going to end with restoration. The last baby died. This one will live. The last baby came to nothing. This one will succeed you to the throne of Israel. I'm not mad at you. I love you. I don't know how your marriage started. I only know it doesn't have to end that way. It may have begun with sin. Get honest with each other. Look each other in the eye and say, let's ask God's forgiveness and listen for his word of grace when he says, you are, after all that's happened in your house, still beloved of my heart. You're beloved of the heart. Now I want to close with this. I want to talk to you about Abraham and Sarah. We're not going to read the scripture. I just want you to listen to me for a moment. A marriage filled with failure and disappointment. Not once, but twice. Abraham was willing for other men to have his wife in order not to get killed. Sarah was willing for Abraham to have another woman in order to get her pregnant so that she could claim the baby as her own. That plan didn't work was a marriage filled with difficulty and hardship and, and disappointment and disillusionment. But long term, they held on. They kept on believing by faith until at the, at the end of everything, they are now old, old people. Sarah conceives a child in her 90s. <laughs> There may be some women here who say, Lord, uh. And it says when they hand her that baby, this is an old woman who is able to nurse that baby. And it says she laughs. She laughs and she says, Look, Genesis chapter 21, she says, The Lord has fulfilled his promise to me. And she says, I'm laughing, and she said, any, everybody who ever hears of this story through all of history, they'll laugh with me at the joy of God. What am I, what am I trying to say to you? Now listen, I'm, I want to close, but I want you to hear this. You need to hear these three things. Listen, marriage is not medicine. Don't get married thinking it'll get you right. Get right. Before you get married, marriage is not medicine. Second, marriage is not necessary. I've preached on marriage tonight, but there are people here who are living full lives single. Don't get so desperate to get married. You hear women say, even a bad husband is better than no husband at all. Talk to a woman with a bad one. (laughs) Marriage is not medicine. Marriage will not heal you. Marriage is not necessary. And third, marriage isn't proof of anything. A lot of women think if I'm not married, I have to get married so I can prove I can get a husband. I have to prove I'm pretty enough to get a husband. I have to men I have to prove I'm manly. I have to marriage doesn't prove anything. <laughs> it only proves it only proves what Mark Twain said, we're all in this together. Now, listen to this. Years and years ago, I went on a mission trip. I was in my 20s. I went on a mission trip to Mexico. And there was some young men up. It was dark. I was in a village with no electricity. It was dark. And there was a train track. We'd rumbled over a train track to go in there. But if you've ever been in a village with no electricity, just a lamplight, it's dark. And I could see up the tracks, some guys up there with a, with a, fire. And I said to the missionary, I'm going to walk up there and get those guys to come to church. And he looked up the track in the desert there. And he said, I don't think that's a good idea. Well, 26, you can't tell a 26 year old anything. And I walked, I learned some things. One is I learned you can see a campfire in the desert a lot further away than you think you can. (laughs) They were way up there. When I got up there, there was about six or seven really, really serious looking hombres sitting there and they had a bottle of tequila and a, had a campfire built right in between the rails. And they were sitting on the rails with their boots inside and in the campfire and passing this tequila around. And I thought, well, I'm here. So I just sat down with them and started talking to them. Come to church, come to church, that kind of thing. Just about that time, way off in the distance, I heard the whistle of a train. <gasps> I said to them, I said, I believe that's a train. <laughs> and they looked at me and they said, See? You know, in a little while the whistle got louder and louder. And I said, You know, I, I believe it's coming this way. <laughs> they they began to laugh. They said, Yes, it is. I don't know if you've ever been sitting on a railroad track with a train coming, but the gravel in the bed vibrates. It's an amazing feeling, and you can feel that train coming through your seat. It, the, the rails hum, and I realized they were all watching me to see if I jump, and you know, pride goeth before destruction. I said I'm going to be the last man to jump if this train cuts my legs off. I'm not jumping. The, the gringo is jumping, so I'm going to sit right here. And I could see this train's coming. The next thing I learned is it's very difficult to judge speed and distance in the dark. (laughs) And I realized it was too late. There was nothing we could do. That train was on us, screaming, whistle, screaming. It was on. There was nothing. Nobody moved. I didn't move. The train was on us. It was there. And suddenly it shot past us on a parallel track that in the darkness I had not known was there. The train went, you ever watch a huge train go by that close? And I just stood up at that train. And I thought, you know, God, these men are your problem. And I just, I just staggered back. I mean, I staggered back. And then it dawned on me, if I had jumped I would have jumped in the front of the train. So I got a word for you that are going through a little bit of a rough time in your marriage. The grass is not greener on the other side of the fence. Don't jump. Don't jump. You you don't know what's coming on the other track. Hang on to each other. Hang on to God. See it through. No matter how it started, no matter the rough spots, no matter how he's disappointed you, no matter how she's disillusioned you, hang on. Grip the rails and hang on. God is on his way. God is on his way. You've been listening to The Leader's Notebook with Dr. Mark Rutland. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review today's podcast. You can follow Dr. Rutland on Twitter at DrMarkRutland or visit his website, DrMarkRutland.com. Join us next week for another episode of The Leader's Notebook.